Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. A little bit later on in the show, we're going to do something just a little bit different. We're not using the panel. We're not going to discuss the color of Beyonce's hair or what Justin Bieber's been up to this week. Instead, I'm going to introduce you to some interesting people that I've met over the last couple of weeks. In a little while, we will meet Hannah John Kamen. She's one of the stars of Ant-Man and the Wasp. Uh, you know her from a number of different shows. She was on Game of Thrones. She's currently in The Killjoys. We'll get to her in just a little while. And then The Man Who Shot the 70s. That's Mick Rock, one of the most famous photographers to take pictures of every rock star that you know from the 1970s. There's Mick Jagger, David Bowie, Lou Reed, took the cover of some of Queen's most famous albums. This guy, you've been staring at his work for as long as you've been alive. It's great stuff. So that's Mick Rock coming up a little bit later on. First up, though, meet John Krasinski. Now, you know him from playing Jim on The Office, and maybe you're watching the new Jack Ryan television show that he stars in. I like to think of him these days as a really great filmmaker. He had a movie called A Quiet Place that opened in theaters uh, not so long ago, a couple of months ago probably, and it immediately went to number one, stayed up there for a couple of weeks. And this is a crazy story about a world where giant monsters are attracted to any sound that you make, so you have to live in complete silence. Right now, I just read in The Hollywood Reporter that they have begun, John Krasinski and his wife Emily Blunt, who also stars in the movie, they've begun reaching out to entertainment journalists, urging them not to forget the critics' darling and commercial hit, you know, just as we're gearing up for a very early award season. The movie's called The Quiet Place, and I love talking to John Krasinski. Here he is. I looked at my watch when you said the first line of dialogue in the in the, in the the waterfall, Yeah, and it's about 40 minutes in. Is it really? Oh, yeah. wow. I never yeah. even timed that. That's great. Yeah, and... and I up until that point, though, I didn't feel like I needed any more than that. Oh, that's I interesting. I didn't feel that's like great. I needed oh, I'm so glad. to hear chitter chatter and like people saying, "My God, those creatures are coming again!" <laughs> you know, something like that. But you it wouldn't have sounded that bad. It would have been yeah. like these yeah. creatures. No, it's true. It's totally true. And tell me, though, it is nervy, though. Tell mm -hmm. me, was there ever a moment when you were kind of like, "Man, I don't know. I don't know if this is..." Oh, every happen. moment. I mean, yeah. I remember you know uh, rewriting the script, so I got that spec script, and it was really truly one of the best ideas I'd ever heard. And then they had so many great tenants of the script that I was working on and so many things that you see in the movie, they had had these bigger moments, but I, I really wanted it to be this metaphor for parenthood. And even then it's, that's a heady idea too. So you say like, well, I hope we have tension and pacing and all the stuff that most movies would have. And I worried that lack of dialogue would be the thing. And then about day two, three, you realize wait a minute, maybe the thing I'm most scared of is our superpower. Like, this right. is actually super engaging and so exciting. And the fact that people are going to experience sound in a completely different way is really, it was really fun. Then it, then it sort of gets you all fired up and you want to, you know, you want to perfect it. You want to get it right. Well, there's not even that much music in the first mm -hmm. half of the film. Not really all that much, I don't think, all the way through. Right. But in the first half, there is silence. Yeah, yeah. And, and it really feels uh, unnerving to be in a movie oh, that's theater. Awesome with nothing yeah with no sense because normally when you're at the movies beforehand there's a trailer wailing away totally, totally. or whatever there's something yeah, yeah, yeah. there's something to keep you uh your ears entertained as well as your eyes and this is much different yeah my favorite one of my favorite things about this whole experience has been listening to audiences understand what's happening right so usually the first 30 seconds of the movie 
you still hear people shifting in their seats. Maybe they take a couple of bites of popcorn and then you realize collectively in the room, you feel people say like, "Uh Oh, I yeah, can't yeah. do this. And I, I love that. I mean, my, you know, there's no better compliment for this movie than it's an experience that it's not just a movie that you feel like you're a part of something as a collective. And, you know, I'm sure you can watch it at home. No problem. But I think that being with a lot of people is a very rare experience with this movie. It's, it's cool. I think that watching movies, uh, in that way, in a theater, sitting in the dark with a bunch of strangers, is hardwired into our DNA because you want to hear people laugh or cry. That's right. Or or whatever. Strangers around you uh, responding to the thing that's in front of you, and it goes back to cavemen. I was just about to say it's the campfire. Yeah, you know, it, is, it, it is. It's the it's the fireside chat that we've yeah. all been. I agree with you. It's programmed, and I, it's the reason why. You know, again, you can watch... Uh, listen, I watch a lot of stuff at home, it, but you're missing out on an added benefit. That's yeah. what I'd say. And I think that the idea of community is um, with the movie-going experience, too. And I loved how people were talking about it leaving. I saw people who did not know each other telling each other what they thought of the movie, and that was cool. And I think that you get empathy for the characters in a greater way when you're surrounded by people and they're... You know, whatever size of a football field right, in front right, of right. you. you no, know, it's there's, true. There's something you really are seeing something that is different and well, special. Well, also, so, totally selfishly, it gave me probably one of the best experiences I've ever had in my career, which is you always want uh, the movie to find an audience. But yeah. at South by Southwest, you know, the night before, my wife asked me, you know, what, what do you really want from tomorrow night? And I said, you know, I guess if I had one thing, it'd be great if they um, cheered at the end, yeah, you yeah. know? yeah. And when they didn't only cheer, they exploded and they jumped up out of their seats. I thought, I don't think I'll ever get it this good again. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that to me felt like theater or something. It felt like we were all in that room for one moment and then it'll never get that good again. It was really amazing. Yeah, never go to another screen. Yeah, I can't. Like, I can't never do it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't think I can ever see it again. Do you think that the silence in the first half of the movie, particularly when people are getting acclimatized to what's going mm -hmm. on, um, do you think the silence is more effective than if you got their attention with I, I don't know if it's it, well Michael Bay was one of the producers here Michael Bay often has wild sound design that makes you kind of sit up and notice mm -hmm. but I think the silence does exactly the same thing but in a different way it's so it forces it's, so, you to it's so interesting you say that because we were experimenting with that my theory was that if you rob people of that immense amount of sound that, that the and again, he does a totally different movie than this. Yeah. But he, there are movies, all the big budget movies, which I go and see. I love yeah. them. But they, they are almost assaulting you with how much sound there is. And what I found was people were saying how uh, uncomfortable the lack of sound was. And right. how, or how loud it was to even hear the woods. And I, yeah. I thought... With in, Exactly. Yeah. And in our in our day-to-day -day now, you know, not to make some you know, big heady statement or whatever, but it's true that we're all buried in our phones and we're buried in our phone calls and on our computers that, you know, if you really did a poll of name 10 sounds that are in the forest, you'd yeah, be yeah. like trees and I don't know, a like bird. what else? Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and what you, when you, you're out there filming, you go, wow, this is really beautiful. There's something really powerful about it. And I, I love that people have responded to it because it could have been an experiment gone wrong where people go, that was weird. I didn't like that. Yeah, was, yeah. You know? And people have been, you know, universally excited about it, which is really cool. And I remember, you know, this is slightly tangential, but not really, is I remember I wrote this script called Promised Land, and we were, we had a meeting with the marketing um, head at the time, Jack, and he was the nicest guy. And I said, you know, before we go into all this stuff, I just was really excited, and I, I'm nerdy and want to learn everything about what he's doing. And I said, what's the biggest misconception? Right. 
And he said, the biggest misconception, if I could choose one, is that um, audiences are stupid. They yep. are not stupid. In fact, they're extreme. And I'm telling you, ever since he said that, things like Game of Thrones have come yep. out. All this stuff like where you have to keep track of 1,242 characters. Yeah, and people yeah. are like, yeah, I know them all. And not like, you don't even have to be a super fan. Everybody knows the Game of Thrones characters. Or this movie, people are like... Yeah, I, um, I've had so many people say, I love that you didn't explain where the creatures came from. I just got it, and, I, and it made me feel like I was with the family. And I went, oh my God, that's amazing. Well, it, it, I think the movie does uh, a couple of things really well like that. So, yeah, I agree with you. Mm -hmm. and, and I think movies, more so than television, often these days treat audiences like they're stupid. Yeah. Um, I think that you know when you've got a character who... Uh, walks across the room and then literally will say something like, I had to come over here to pick this thing up. No, okay. exactly. Show me, don't tell me. Just exactly like, you know. correct. Yeah. So, it, it is, so uh, I, I agree 100% there. But this film doesn't do that. This movie... Uh, we see in your workshop, we see some headlines, we see your whiteboard with mm -hmm. whatever written on it, uh, the the flapping tablet, yeah, which yeah, I thought, yeah. that's making some noise, that can't be good. Yeah, 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 exactly, that's the, cool. Outside the, outside the store at the beginning, but that gives you all the information that you need. Awesome. And and other than that, the rest is just, like, who cares? Who well, cares if they're like, Venus? Exactly, and... and what you should what I wanted was if you care about where they're from more than you care about this family I didn't do my job right that's right yeah that's right and uh, tell me about casting I mean we'll, we'll talk about Emily in a second right 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 yeah she, because I mean when you rewrote this script mm -hmm. um, you were with the story goes I've read the stories about you sure, respecting sure. a child and you know mm -hmm. all that stuff so we'll get there but the little kids the little kids it's almost like casting a silent movie I would imagine you're looking it's for exactly these, true it's exactly in fact I don't think I've told anybody this but you know we were so excited to start casting and finding these kids and then we realized we didn't have any scenes for them to do and I remember uh, I picked let me think. I, I know one. The the one that I came up with right away was one of my favorite movies is Kramer versus Kramer. Yep. And so I had them do the ice cream scene where the father says, "Don't do it, don't yep. do it," and the kid just acts sort of his aggressive feelings towards the father out in an ice cream. So that was one of the scenes. And then I think I'm trying to think. Of, but anyway, we we chose scenes that didn't have dialogue where you had to act your way through it. Right. That's John Krasinski talking about a quiet place. We have more of my conversation with him coming up. I wanted to find out. How you cast a film when, really, there's very little dialogue. They don't say a word for the first 40 minutes of this movie. So we'll get to that with John Krasinski uh, in the next segment. Stay tuned, though. After that, you'll meet Hannah John Kamen. She plays Ghost in the new film Ant-Man and the Wasp. That opens this weekend. Uh, I can't tell you much about the character because it's kind of a secret, but she tells you everything you need to know. And then we'll meet Mick Rock. He's one of the most storied photographers of the 1970s, and he's here to tell you every one of those stories. Well, specifically, we talk about David Bowie. He was David Bowie's official photographer during the Ziggy Stardust years. You want to hear those stories, so you want to stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krauss. We're in conversation with John Krasinski. Now, as I said earlier, you know him from playing Jim on The Office. Who didn't love that character? Uh, you may be watching him now, on the new Jack Ryan television show. He's taken over from Ben Affleck and Alec Baldwin and anyone else who's played that character. He's doing it on television right now. He's becoming really well-known, though, as a film director. And the movie that really made his reputation came out a couple of months ago. You'll be able to find it on DVD soon. But if you can, go see it on the big screen. It's called A Quiet Place. And it takes place in a world where giant creatures attack you 
if you've made a sound. Now, I know it sounds kind of silly. It sounds like a B movie from the 1950s, but it's so much more than that. It's a really uh, lovely movie about survival. Uh, it's got some very thrilling moments. It stars Emily Blunt, and it also stars another young actress named Millicent Simmons. Now, you may not recognize that name. She's only made a couple of movies. Uh, she is uh, a preteen maybe 13 years old now, but she started in a movie called Wonderstruck that I saw a little while ago. Now, I didn't love that movie, but I loved her performance in it. Uh, she is a young woman who, when she was very young, very young, uh, she was struck by a fever that took away her hearing, and she's been deaf ever since. And she has managed to turned that into a real asset, working in films like Wonderstruck and now A Quiet Place. And I spoke with John Krasinski about casting her because she is so effective in the film. She's so beautiful in the film. Uh, I wanted to know, how did he find her? Here's what he had to say. We started putting some people on tape and stuff, but Millie's name came up immediately um, because it was non-negotiable, as I'm sure you've read, that it was non-negotiable for me to not have a deaf actress. And then right. Laura Rosenthal had just cast Wonderstruck, so I said, you must have had a wide net cast. She said, I did, but you really should see the girl from the movie. And I said, oh, okay. You know, and I was thinking probably slightly um, pretentiously, like, yeah, but I'm going to have my own discovery. Yeah, and yeah. she was like, mm, you don't need one. She's as good as it gets. And so I wrote an email to Todd Haynes, who I didn't know, but was such a huge fan of, and just said, could I ever watch the audition? And he sent it, and he said, she's not only the best actress you'll ever work with, but she's one of the greatest human beings. And that's true is I think what comes across in this film is not only how good they are and how capable they are as actors, but they actually brought so much of who they are. You know what I mean? You really see Noah is such a sweet boy and such a good kid. And like, I'm sorry, in this day and age, especially as a parent, I look around and and clap for any parent who can get their kid to be that nice and that good and well, that... Especially on a film set where they're Absolutely. getting coddled and probably and there's candy at 3 o'clock. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And yeah, these yeah. kids were just such good kids and they brought so much of their own essence to the to the part, which is, I think, something we all try to bring is something real to these parts so that we're not acting, we're trying to live believably. And I think that they do. They genuinely lived through these parts, so much so that on the last day of shooting, I mean, man, were there tears. These two these two kids were not, you know, co-workers. They were best friends, if not family. They had gone so far, and, and it was really hard. It was really like breaking up a family at the end of the movie. And then, you know, like I, I'm sure you know, but with Emily, it was that I always wanted her to do it when I was rewriting, but the, the two versions of this in my head were going to go really wrong. I asked her to do it and she says no, oh yeah, which yeah, makes yeah. dinner really awkward. <laughs> yeah, or yeah. Um, she says, yeah, for you, I'll do it. And I went, oh, she can't yeah. do it for me. Because yeah. then I know myself, right? And I'm, I'm a very, um, you know, you know, uh, if, I don't know, the old saying is like, if you're going to hit me, hit me in the face, not in the back. You know, yeah. like I, I just want the bad news straight. And I don't want to know that she's doing something for me. And I think it's because... I was, I have been witness to exactly the specificity, exactly the high level of taste that she has. And I've seen how good a career she has because of what she's chosen to do. She has, she is her career. Yeah. And so I didn't want her to um, choose this for me and then have it be a weird experience. I needed her to come to it on her own. So when she asked me to read the script, I thought, well, you know, here's your chance. And I let her read the script. Didn't think she'd say yes to honestly, I didn't. Um, she was doing Mary Poppins. We had our second yeah. child, so whatever. Um, she was busy. And then she said, you can't let anybody else do this role. 
And I know it sounds corny, but it's true. It's, it's still the greatest compliment in my career because I know what it takes to get her to say yes. And you guys did a thing that I thought was so cool that you played a game with one another about mm-hmm. being quiet. Yeah. And that and it's such a cool... And then it would be like, you're dead. Yeah. If you did, like... You're but just, it is true. Yeah. And, and it's funny because it was Emily who... Um, one night she said, man, I mean, living silently would be hard, right? And I said, yeah. And then she said, no, but like really hard. And then as the weeks went by we would constantly make note of it. And then it wasn't even like getting silverware to make the kids lunch or anything like that. It was more like you're putting the kids to bed and the bed cre- you know, yeah. creaks or, or something. And you just thought, wow, we are legitimately surrounded by sound. Or what if somebody snores? I kept yeah, thinking, exactly. what yeah, if somebody yeah, yeah. snores yeah. while they sleep? Or, yeah. or, uh, but there's all the little details in the movie that work really well, like when they're having dinner and they were eating off leaves. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, like cutlery would be... You know, exactly. Kind of yeah, that was an old um, thing that I got from... Um, I remember in seventh grade, I took a class called Medieval Times or Medieval Studies or something. And I remember them telling us that the chargers back then were made out of bread. So their plates were made of bread so that they could eat the whole thing and then not have to do dishes. And I thought, wow, that's pretty genius. And then when I thought of that for this, and then actually from that same class came the fires, that the dad lights the fires. And so that was the way to communicate without making telephone calls. And it was just a lot of stuff I didn't know I had been collecting all over the years that I got to use. That's how it all comes out. I don't know how I'm going to do another one because I I took all my good ideas. (laughs) John, thanks so much. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks for the kind words. Oh, no problem. And congratulations on it. That's John Krasinski. Now, the reason that I pulled up this interview, I wanted to play it for you because I read an article in The Hollywood Reporter about how he and his wife, Emily Blunt, you just heard him talk about her, uh, have begun reaching out and sort of making sure that this movie doesn't get forgotten about come awards time. And I know it seems kind of early, but September's right around the corner, then October, and then we're in the heat of it right there. And movies like A Quiet Place years ago would have gotten forgotten about. It was a smaller movie. It's a horror movie. uh, It's a thriller. It's got lots of kind of B-movie elements, but it's much more than that. And I think the success of a film like Get Out last year, both in theaters and on the big screen, taught us a big lesson about what movies can make a big splash come awards time. So the movie is called A Quiet Place. See it in a theater if you can. And I will tell you now, the first 40 minutes of the movie, there's no dialogue. It's complete silence, and it sucks you in. Krasinski uses silence the way that a lot of other directors use music to really kind of draw you into the story. And where Michael Bay might play something really bombastic, John Krasinski just lets the silence take over, and I'll tell you, it's hypnotic. The movie is called A Quiet Place. When we come back, we're going to talk to Hannah John Kamen. She's Ghost in Ant-Man and the Wasp. You know her from other TV shows like uh, Game of Thrones, uh, The Killjoys. She's in the movie Ready Player One. Had a great time talking to her. Uh, Stay with us. Coming up with Hannah John Kamen. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. Hannah John Kamen stars in Ant-Man in the Wasp. She's playing an interesting character. The name is Ghost. She exists on both the physical and, I guess, metaphysical plane. I can't really tell you anything more about the character than that, though. That's the teaser. That's how I draw you in. I'll let her fill in as many details as you can. I will also tell you that if you're thinking about the Ant-Man comic books and you're thinking, oh, I know that character. Well, you don't really. In the comic books, played by a man. 
So they've changed it considerably, and I think changed the motivations and all that kind of stuff for the character uh, in the film. Uh, but Ant-Man and the Wasp opens this weekend. Uh, it plows some new ground. It's the first time a female superhero's name is in the title of a Marvel Cinematic Universe film. Uh, and if you like uh, superheroes that shrink down to the size of an ant, this movie is for you. Right now, though, let's get back to Hannah John Kamen talking about uh, her character and, you know, just telling us what she can about the very special character she plays in the film. Yeah, I, I would love to. Ghost is a very mysterious character mm -hmm. in the Marvel Universe. Um, she is the antagonist in the movie. She's the threat to our heroes. Um, but... I mean, I approach the character that she's not the villain in the movie. She's not at all in my eyes. Well, you and can't judge a character. You Otherwise, can't. you become a, a caricature, right? Exactly. Become a caricature. And also, you know, I feel like the audience don't really want to connect with you. And they don't want to right. see your side. Because if, you know, I think if you go in there going, ha-ha, I'm playing the evil, <laughs> you know, villain. Yeah. And I'm, I, you know, world domination. Isn't it hilarious? I think, you know, that's very hard for an audience to... to connect and sympathize or see the reasoning in mm -hmm. the actions. Um, so I really did approach the character in, in a way where actually everybody else is bad and she's been wronged and, and you know, she has a very clear objective in the movie and she's going to fight tooth and nail to get it. So Because yeah. she does some terrible things, but uh, and, and this doesn't give anything away, but uh, there's a, a real reason, as we were just saying, there's a real reason for it. And the reason that she does terrible things would never happen to anyone in real life, mm -hmm. but I guess it's relatable because people sometimes are driven through pain or whatever else Absolutely. to behave in extraordinary ways. Absolutely. I think, you know, you know, when you're pushed into a corner, you do do, you know, things and you can react to things. Um, and, you know, it's, it's such an incredible character. She's, she's got so much depth, and I've had real fun playing her and the stakes are so high mm. I mean for a wonderful I mean the Peyton Reed you know executes so well that he did in the first one you know the the, the comedy in Ant-Man you know and, and the action in Ant-Man and every you know the, the romance in Ant-Man you know, it's been fun to play the through line of, of you know, not being the comedic <laughs> character in Ant-Man, uh, which was, you know, it was it was fun in its own right. She wasn't always a she, though. No, and, she wasn't. So tell me a little bit about that. I mean, I think that Marvel continues to be kind of at the forefront of, of pushing down a lot of barriers. There are fan reasons why I guess maybe you might have wanted to keep the character as as a male but they said no we're going to try something a little different Absolutely. here and it seems to me to be really forward looking and thinking I agree it's progressive and it's onwards and upwards you know and I think that um you know when I when I did look into the, you know the comic books I went to the comic book store you know mm -hmm. especially after being cast as ghost and said hi can I get anything <laughs> with ghost you know well let's do my research and see yeah, yeah. you know who he was and Honestly, there wasn't a lot, which was great. Um, you know, Ghost, the origin, there was no origin of Ghost. Right. Um, makes it easier? or, or Makes or, it easier because, yeah. you know, and, you know, and I know that Ghost was part of the Thunderbolt team and also with Iron Man, but, you know, as me, Hannah John Carmen, I haven't got a lot to go on. So I really literally get to take the name Ghost 
take him off the comic book page and bring her to life. Right. You know, it re I felt freedom with that. And I didn't feel too tied to, you know, anything and the, or that I would be letting fans of the origin of, you know, down yeah, because yeah. there isn't one. So it's, you know, I think, you know, it's really through fresh eyes we're going to see this really cool, amazing character. And what has the reaction been from people? Because not many people have seen it yet mm -hmm. as we sit here talking mm -hmm. today. Uh, but it has played at, you know, there was a big premiere in L.A., Absolutely. I think. And, and so, and, and what has been the reaction from fans? Because people who love comic book movies love to be vocal about them. Um, the absolutely the response has been so good, and I think do you know what after Infinity War we all need Ant Man and the Wasp. <laughs> <I think> so, <laughs> yeah, I think we all need to you know have have a have a bit of a laugh. Um, no, the response has been absolutely amazing, and Peyton Reed has really just knocked it out of the park again. And it's just it's just such it's so friendly to a broad audience. Adults will love it. Kids will love it. And it's got everything in there. It's got so many different themes. It's got the high octane drama. It's got the action. It's got the romance. It's got the cyber, everything. Yeah, in there, everything. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's kind of like an incredible Marvel blended milkshake of everything you possibly could want emotionally. <laughs> with incredible, oh, with an incredible new cast, by the way. Yeah. The some, yeah, those names. Um, that's incredible. They were amazing. And most of your scenes, or a lot of your scenes, are with Lawrence Fishburne. Uh, legendary. Legend. Legendary. Real, real life hero, real life legend to me. Yeah. Inspiring and, and you, for me growing up. Yeah, absolutely. From Apocalypse Now mm -hmm. on. I yep. mean, you know. So tell me about working with him. Because oh. he intimidated me when I first met him. And then it turns out he's not as intimidating <laughs> as you might think he is. <laughs> oh, he was a pleasure to work with. Yeah. He was such a pleasure to work with. You know, and I'm, I'm, I was starstruck with, you know, everybody on set. Yeah. And, you know, he was just so easy to work with, so easy to work with. And I, I am constantly learning and absorbing, you know, from this real life hero of mine. Um, but, you know, that's kind of the mood on set as well is for me, it was very daunting at the beginning to to take this, you know, because it's a big responsibility with Ghost to take this new character and to bring her into the Marvel universe. Yeah. And... I really felt like I was welcomed with open arms and because you know, it's not just the universe mm -hmm. uh, it's also a cast that has worked together exactly. in, in some cases before exactly. and so you're the you're the newbie I was in, the in new a kid and I was ways. the new yeah. kid on the block yeah. and um the new kid on the block that the, you know <laughs> we're we're kind of we're kind of at war in the movie but um no it was it's it was amazing that I I was just accepted and we had so much I mean it's a fun movie mm -hmm. and we had fun making it and, you know, to sit back and actually final, finally watch the final product is a very emotional thing. Yeah, because probably when you're making it, and I don't want to give anything away, but your character isn't completely physical or there's something metaphysical about her. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's the best way to describe it. So <laughs> on set, though, obviously that's not happening. Well, there's... Um... With the character's suit, you know, with my costume and yeah. everything, you know, when you put on that suit, there's not, not a feeling like it. You know, yeah. you kind of put it on and you go, wow, okay, now I am, ooh, now I'm ghost. And it kind of does something to you. And, um, you know, it was, I had absolutely no limits on set of playing the scene, doing the fight, and then the effects were kind of added later. But I, know, I definitely know that I had to do the fights again without anyone there and basically fight myself <laughs> so that they could do the visuals. Right. Um, 
which was fun. it was a first kind of that was kind of it? that was a first for me that yeah. was a first I really enjoyed it but at first I was like you want me to what now and then yeah. <laughs> okay and it kind of looked like I was um yeah, um, either hitting myself or uh, doing a contemporary dance. Yeah, right. <laughs> Battling your imaginary friend. Battling yeah. my imaginary <laughs> friend, exactly. <laughs> that was Hannah John Kamen, a British actress. She's known for shows like The Killjoys, Game of Thrones. She was in Ready Player One. Uh, right now, I think, though, Ant-Man and the Wasp is the movie that's probably going to send her over the top in terms of name recognition with the audiences. Mick Rock is coming up next. He is sometimes known as the man who shot the 70s because he created so many key rock and roll images like album covers for Sid Barrett's Madcap Laughs, Lou Reed's Transformer, uh, Coney Island Baby by Lou Reed, Iggy and the Stooges' Raw Power. That's one of the most iconic images uh, from that era. Also, Queen, he worked on Joan Jett's I Love Rock and Roll, got that image at 3 a.m. in the morning. Uh, He's got amazing stories, but I wanted to talk to him about David Bowie, and I got the chance to. He was David Bowie's personal photographers, and you want to stick around and hear some of these stories. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. We've heard from John Krasinski. We heard from Hannah John Kamen. Now it's time for Mick Rock. Now, Mick Rock gave me the opportunity to do something that I don't get to do very often. Uh, David Bowie is, uh, well, to put it politely, I am politely what you call a fanboy of David Bowie, a ridiculous fanboy. And I never got to meet him, probably just as well, because I likely would have embarrassed myself. But I did get a chance to talk to Mick Rock. And Mick Rock was his personal photographer during the Ziggy Stardust years. He directed the Life on Mars video. So we're going to talk to him about what it was like to be around David Bowie in those days and what it was like to make one of the most famous music videos of all time, Life on Mars by David Bowie. Here's Mick Rock. Give me a sense of what it was like to be in the middle of that maelstrom. I mean, this was someone who hadn't been particularly successful up until this point and all of a sudden cuts all their hair off, dresses differently, creates a, an album, which I still listen to about once a week, and all of a sudden is the biggest rock star in the world, and you were there for it. Yeah, well, looking back, that was... I mean, at the time, it was incremental. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, But yeah, now I look back, and of course I have... There's a couple of other photographers did great pictures of him, but they were in the studio. I wasn't a studio photographer, and I toured with David. So um, I do, you know, pictures of him sleeping, eating, especially doing his makeup <laughs> or getting prepared backstage, uh, hanging around in his underpants, no less. <laughs> uh, and, um, well, David was a very smart, of course, it's, it's, I, he's, people say, how do you feel? I said, well, it's so strange with David because he's gone, mm-hmm. but he's everywhere. I mean, in a way, in some ways, as far as the modern world is concerned, David Bowie, not for older people necessarily, or not that older people don't like him, certainly, you know, 70 and 80 year olds, it's still the Rolling Stones because they're still going, or Bob Dylan even. Yeah. But but I, I don't think the kids relate as much to those, but they, everybody, and they, when I did this massive exhibition, only when I was down there about a month ago in Mexico City at this huge museum, like 150 prints and huge prints, there was so much media. 
and when all the, you know, when we when I did talks and that the kids came, and they were young, mm-hmm. all wanting the autograph and pictures of David. But David was a futurist. I mean, you look back at Ziggy Stardust. You look back at the music. Again, God bless the Rolling Stones. I certainly would never knock them for going out on stage, and they're not that much older than me. And I go, oh my God, I love it, you know. But David, David, you listen to Ziggy. You listen to Hunky Dory, which is the album that really turned me onto him. It doesn't sound like old music. No, I mean, not that people mind old music. Yeah. Look at all the nostalgia acts there are out today making a ton of money, and they haven't had a hit in 20, 25, 30 <laughs> years, but they can trot out. Yeah. You know, I always think of a band like Journey, not to pick on Journey, who were never a band that interests. None of that REO, Speedwagon, Kansas. No, that was not, and I never photographed any of them. I, well, I was a city boy, for starters. Yeah. Um, and... Um, it's it just sounds like today or you listen to something a bit later like young americans mm-hmm. or or um you listen to the scary whatever it is you're listening to of david and even the look i mean ziggy yeah. stardust is so postmodern still 40 years later it's uh yes and i did it and of course i was didn't really have a lot of perspective i was it was all intuitive and about the relationship and not thinking about it, but enjoying it. But to see it grow, and it did grow quite fast. I met David in the in March of 72, and it was that Ziggy was actually over by November 73. I mean, it was a short burst, and he really didn't play. And he did in Tokyo play a very big uh, um, show, but really in London and New York, I mean, he wasn't playing stadiums. In fact, nobody was playing stadiums yeah, yeah. in the in those days, um, unless it was for the Monterey or um, Woodstock or, or something. Well, like Woodstock, that. Yeah, 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 but there weren't many of them either. The Isle of Wight had started, I remember, but um, they. But they were playing places like uh, the Hammersmith Odeon. You know, probably three, four, or five thousand people at a time. That would be a big rock show. At the time. At that time. And for him, I mean, when I took the picture of him gnawing away on Mick Ronson's yeah. guitar, which became such a, at that time, yeah. I mean, today, it's a and different world. An outrageous world. image from yeah, For that period, yeah. yeah. Um, there were a thousand people at that concert, and that was his biggest audience to date. Wow. And I be- do believe, again, sometimes I have good recall because of all the yoga I do, but sometimes... <laughs> But it, it might have been the day after the release of Ziggy Stardust. So the full thing hadn't happened, right. but he had built enough momentum for him. When I first saw him, at, what was it, Birmingham Town Hall in March, remember this, March, April, May, this is only maybe three months later. So that happened very quickly. Um, he, um, he was up to 1,000 people, and yeah. that was a big deal for him at that point in time. Um, and he never, he played Earl's Court, but not the big Earl's Court. I think I saw uh, the Grateful Dead there in the summer of 72, uh, and I think they filled the bigger space because 
you know, they had this but, hippie following. But reading about it at the time, we just have a minute left here, but reading about it at the time, it felt to me like there was this wave happening. I didn't know there were only a thousand people there. He had bodyguards. He had like no, the theater of it. It was it was the theater of it all, and that's one of the things that I find so fascinating about the photographs as as images of a moment. He was a star before he was a star. He was treated like a star, and that was part of the game, Mm -hmm. right? Like to have a personal photographer. Yeah. I mean, the thing with me was I didn't cost much. I mean, he couldn't have had, like, one of those because they couldn't have afforded it. Yeah, David Bailey was not going to be no, his... Was uh, gonna yeah. put, no, he wasn't. <laughs> um, but um, it, it was very personal, but, it, but in a very cool way. And it wasn't... That came a little bit later. It wasn't full-stretch sex, drugs, and yeah. rock and roll. I mean, 73, that was starting to gear up and, you know, the toilet runs and things like that. For me, <laughs> as a kid sitting on this side of the Atlantic, yes, it looked like a much bigger deal Boy, than it, it was inside. But, of course, it was generating David. Mm-hmm. And David and, of course, Mick Ronson was a very important part of that whole thing. And the two of them together on stage. I mean, that that was a vision. God bless Mick and Keith and... Yeah. Stephen and Joey and whatever yeah. these you know the double acts that yeah. front a lot of bands but I mean those two from my perspective the look of those two was something else yeah. you know well, I, I mean I, I was totally spoiled and when you see the footage of them on top of the pops playing Starman and the arm that, goes yeah, around that and is that, a and rock you, and roll and moment that changed the world I know? mean from this perspective you go you got to go if you're young, why would him yeah. putting his arm round Mick be such a big deal? Yeah. In the modern world, yeah. you see it everywhere. Yeah. But back in those days, well, I think it, it, until 69, it had been to be homosexual was, was a crime yeah, in England. Was, yeah, I think yeah. it was here yeah. until... Um, not that they had that kind of relationship. Mick was... In fact, Mick, sometimes David would gather certain people come backstage and hit on Mick, and Mick didn't really have a clue. (laughs) And David would have a good laugh, you know, because David was very hip, you know, he was a London lad. I was just in New York and went to the Brooklyn Museum and saw the Bowie exhibit for about the 90th time. It played here as well. I've seen I it. I was time here that, for that one. Yeah, and it was fantastic. Yes. Uh, and one of the exhibits is the Life on Mars video, video. You see it, and they've got the suit there as well that he wore, the big sort of almost a zoot suit with mm-hmm. the thing. Tell me yeah, what, and he wore it that one time. He, well, just the one time. So just tell me one. about making that because mm. that video is iconic, and it was before everyone was making videos. But not before I was making videos. (laughs) (laughs) Because I had done, well, I had done one for Moon Age Daydream, which is a funny little thing, like a college. And there is one for Rock and Roll Suicide, but we're trying to work out music clearance for that. But those four, of course, well, I know and thought about ownership at the time. There was no paperwork. There was no nothing. David and I did. He'd say... What about this, mate? Are they going to release it as a single? And probably the next day, I'd have to organise the shooting. Uh, we'd live on Mars. Well, that was a one-day shoot. I mean, it was. It was. What should we do, Mick? Yeah. And I said, I don't know, man. I didn't. Even, we got to find a space. So I went for the space. It was just a big white uh, 
studio with uh, with a psych, which means it yeah, right, the, yeah. it's a, a seamless white backdrop. That, that's right, yeah. uh, and not a paper, not a paper one. Yeah. I know people love it when the, they inducted all of David's. Uh, I don't know, maybe in, it was a few years ago now, maybe four or five years ago, into the Museum of Modern Art um, collection. The one everybody got up and cheered was was Life on Mars. Yeah. That's Mick Rock talking about the making of David Bowie's most famous video, I think. And certainly it's the one that catches my eye every time it's on television. Uh, Life on Mars, David Bowie. I enjoyed talking to Mick Rock. Love talking to everyone else on the show. Thanks so much to Hannah John Kamen. Go see Ant-Man and the Wasp this weekend. Also, thanks to John Krasinski for stopping by. Most of all, though, thanks to you for being here. Uh, there would be no point in doing the show if you weren't out there listening. Also, uh, thanks to Ed on the board, and we'll talk to you again next week.